This, 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 this is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. We'll start with the baseball here because the Yankees are about to get underway in just a little bit. So let's get them uh, up on the uh, discussion table first. They're carrying on the series with the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, Last night was a laugher, 12 to 3. And a lot of these games are laughers, right? I mean, what the Yankees are doing right now, I'm running out of words to describe. Really. And I think Yankee fans are probably running out of words to describe the way this team has played. I tweeted this out a little bit earlier. And again, if you're not following, you're missing out. At Dan Grasa, G-R-A-C-A. The Yankees, not only are they good, not only are they having a great season, but specifically, the Yankees right now find themselves 32 games over 500 at 48 and 16. Let, let, that, let that sink in for a second. 48 and 16. 32 games over 500. Do you realize that half of the teams in Major League Baseball, so 15 of them, don't even have 32 wins this season? Isn't that incredible? See ya! 32 games over 500. Half the damn sport doesn't even have 32 wins in the win column. But that's the Yanks. Now, look, I don't expect them to keep this pace up all season long. I mean, you'd have to be a fool to think they could. I had to go look it up last night and check the 98 Yankees, right? Because just in terms of, like, regular season significance, like the 98 Yankees are the bar, at least for the franchise. They won 114 games, and ultimately they went on and won the World Series, as we all know. But the 98 Yankees, after 64 games, just like this current group, same record. 48 and 16. So, I mean, if you would have told me that this Yankee team was going to flirt with history in 2022, I never would have believed it. I thought the Yankees would make the playoffs because the Yankees always find a way to make the playoffs. They always find a way to figure it out. Even though they have flawed, they had flaws on paper going into the season, maybe some question marks here and there, you still always were confident in the fact that they would find a way to get it done because that's what they do. Remember, this team last year, was scuffling about in the middle of part of the season. You know, and you wouldn't even know if they made the playoffs. Then Cashman goes out there at the trade deadline, and he finally realizes, hey, I need some lefty bats. I got a short porch in right field. I better get some left-handed sticks to put in that lineup. He gets uh, Rizzo. He gets Gallo. And then it's good enough to help them at least get to the postseason before their quest was stopped there at Fenway Park in the wild card game. But the thing that's the most surprising about the Yankees, and we've said it time and time and time again this year, I never expected the starting pitching to be as prolific as they've been. You know, they are the ones that are leading the charge for this Yankee team. You know, they have been as consistent a starting five as there is in all of Major League Baseball. And who in the hell thought that was possible? Not me. It was always Garrett Cole and guys that you crossed your fingers would be able to make it through. Forget about the season. How about a start? And they've been nothing short of phenomenal. Now, the challenge is going to be tough today, just, you know, looking in terms of today's matchup, because not only are they playing the Blue Jays, they're playing Alec Manoa, or Alec Manoa is going for the, the Jays. He's been their best pitcher. Alec Manoa is in his second year in the big leagues. I actually had him on uh, my show on MLB Network Radio last week. Great kid. Humble kid. Guy just wants the ball. He wants to help his team win games. You know, he was a guy who didn't even pitch until he was, geez, junior in, college, or junior in high school maybe. 
before he was a you know he was you know kind of like a husky guy. He was a catcher, a first baseman, that sort of thing. wasn't even a pitcher until his junior year in high school. Ended up at West Virginia, and then ended up getting drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays. The rest is history. Remember, he made his major league debut last year at Yankee Stadium. It was Memorial Day weekend, going into that weekend on that Thursday in the Bronx. And, you know, pitched a big ball game there. And when I saw him pitch that game, I said, you know what? This dude's got it. He's got the intangibles. You know, to not be intimidated by Yankee Stadium, to act like you belong in your first major league base, your first start in the majors and not even flinch. I was on this dude right away and he hasn't disappointed. He hasn't let down. And what makes it even more impressive is that Toronto, they find ways to win games when this guy pitches. I'm pretty sure off the top of my head, Alec Manoa starts in his major league career with the Toronto Blue Jays, I think the Blue Jays are like twenty-one and twenty or twenty-one or twenty-two and seven in his career in games that he starts. So you know what? If you're going to find ways to win three quarters of the time that you start, I think you're doing something right. You know, strikeouts are cool, no hitters are school are cool, ERA, all that good stuff. But more often than not, if you bring your team home a winner, I think that satisfies things. But you know, back to the Yankees. I said this on the show last night that we did for you at 7 o'clock. I know we're still a ways away from the trade deadline, you know, about a month and a half, August 2nd. And you're not even thinking about stocking the shelves if you're the Yankees because you're living a charm life. If you're living in the penthouse and everything is brand new and fine and dandy and luxurious and, like, why would you change it, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that's June 18th. You know, things might not be the same on July 18th, let alone August 18th. What you have to do is guard against any potential adversity. That's the job of any good front office executive, and Brian Cashman's got to be thinking in those terms. He can't be sitting there on his hands, you know, waiting for that other shoe to drop. If you're Brian Cashman, you got a gem right now, right? You got a prized possession. What you have to do is find ways to go out there and add to it and supplement what you have going good right now. And to that point, that's why I'm sitting here and advocating for the Yankees to go add more starting pitching. That's right. Something that has been a strength of theirs this year. But you know and I know, you don't make it through an entire 162-game season by only pitching five starters primarily. Like the Yankees have had a couple of guys make spot starts. You know, Luis Heal made a start. Sears made a start. But other than that, it's been those same five dudes. That's not going to happen, especially when you're talking about multiple guys in that rotation who have had some injury concerns in their career. Don't allow it to be a problem. I'm not waiting till August 2nd. If I'm Cashman, I'm on the phone. I'm trying to get myself another starting pitcher in here. And you know what? I don't care if you have an overcrowded rotation. Go to a six-man rotation, which I know the players hate, but who cares? You're trying to win championships. Or if you've got six starting pitchers, Make the best five battle it out to determine who's going to stay in that rotation. You can never have too much insurance. So my message to Cashman and to the Yankees, go out there and continue to add to what has been a strength and what is largely responsible for you being in first place right now. Look, I, I know realistically speaking, you have to temper your expectations for you know what the Knicks could potentially have in store. They pick 11th in the first round, and they have the 42nd overall pick as of now, which is the 12th selection in round number two. Are they going to stand pat? Are they going to work a deal? 
to move on up to try to make something happen? Who knows? You know, there seems to be a lot of scuttlebutt, a lot of talk that maybe some teams are eyeing, uh, I believe it's Sacramento at number four to try to maybe swoop in and see if they can get something done and uh, try to improve their position. We'll find out. I mean, look, it goes without saying right now that if you look at the Knicks and what they need to do and what they need to address, I think that point guard is certainly at or near the top of the list. That's something you'd like to see them address. Uh, Can they get that done? Can they get a diamond in the rough possibly on Thursday that it's going to solve all of their needs and all of their concerns? Maybe, right? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, I just don't know. I, I think that this draft is interesting. You know, you have some prospects, some dudes that, you know, could flourish, but you just never know. And the problem that you've run into year in and year out now, especially recently with the draft, is that guys are coming into the league so young and not necessarily raw would be the operative word, but when you're that young, like a guy like, for instance, Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga. The dude's got all the skills, right? But his, these guys, their bodies aren't developed yet. They have to get stronger. You know, they got to put some muscle on. You want to see them grow out a little bit. And then whatever tools you may think they have in terms of the game, how do you know that they're going to reach them? How do you know that they're going to develop? Or from what they flashed under a short sample size in college, like that's the best they're ever going to get. So that's why I'm always a little bit leery put on all of my eggs into the basket of like the rookie first round pick guy that he's all of a sudden going to be the solution because something, you know, as often as they pan out, that's as often as they don't pan out for you. And then you're left having a scramble to where you have to go get yourself a veteran on another team and explore the trade market and, and so on and so forth. Look, I am a big proponent always have been of give me proven over potential any day of the week, because at least if I know if I'm signing a free agent, If I'm going out there and executing a trade with somebody, a veteran from another team, I already know what this guy is. I already know that the guy can or cannot play in the league. I know what his strengths are. I know what type of a system maybe he best flourishes in and those things. You know, I have a lot more data on the player, and I think that that's invaluable whenever you're talking about trying to build your team. And look, the Knicks got some work to do. You know, what we just saw in the NBA Finals – with the Boston Celtics, and we're going to keep it to the east because, you know, Golden State's out west and Knicks don't have to worry about them, all right? Let the people out in the west have to deal with Golden State. It's not just going to be the Boston Celtics that are going to be a problem potentially here for the New York Knicks, right? It's, it's not just them. It's, for starters, the team that they share, you know, uh, you know their cross-borough rivals, if you will, with the Brooklyn Nets. You know, what type of team is Brooklyn going to be? Are they going to all be on the same page? Is Ben Simmons going to play? Kevin Durant going to be able to stay healthy through a whole season? Is Kevin Durant going to be on the same page with some of his teammates and, you know, whether or not they're going to be committed to actually playing basketball? What the hell is Kyrie Irving going to feel like when the season starts? You know, would it shock you if something crazy happens with Kyrie? Like, once we get closer to the season and rumors come out maybe in, like, August, then maybe Kyrie is thinking about, like, I don't know, something crazy that Kyrie would do. Like, Kyrie wants to give baseball a try. And then he's going to think about, you know, retiring from basketball to do baseball or just something wacky because there's, al- there's, always, there's always something with Kyrie Irving to where you already have openly questioned his commitment to basketball, to where basketball, and I don't think that this is insulting. I just think it's fact and it's working off of the evidence that we've already seen so far. I question whether or not Kyrie Irving's number one priority and number one commitment is basketball. I think Kevin Durant's is. I don't think Kyrie Irving's is. And that's a problem. 
Because when you get those two type of personalities and those two type of individuals in the same team, and not only the same team, the two guys who are supposed to be the leaders of your team, that's where problems arise. And I think that you've already seen those problems manifest themselves over the last couple of years with the Nets. And that's why they've been unable to fulfill their goals of winning a championship. And I mean, Jesus, Ben Simmons, I mean, really, does anybody out there, like, raise your hand if you actually think that Ben Simmons is going to be someone you can count on with the Brooklyn Nets this year. I don't even know if he's going to be playing game number one. I don't know. I mean, how do we know that when training camp starts, he's going to show up and all of a sudden, oh, my back hurts. All of a sudden, I, I don't know, I, 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 I'm ramping up. What was the term that they used last year? He's ramping up activity or whatever, like, nonsensical phrase that they used and he was out there at practice and all the video that you saw of him on the practice floor was he was doing everything but shooting the basketball like he would be dribbling he would be doing all these different things but then like he would never take a shot like you still have not seen him take a shot because he was ramping up and that was all part of the process too many question marks for the Nets Nets by the way don't have a draft choice on Thursday don't have one in either round but think about, I mean, Brooklyn was a team that underachieved. They were the seventh seed this year for the most part, right? I mean, what, what's Atlanta going to do for an encore? This was a team that was in the conference finals two years ago. Had a tail off this past season. What version of the Hawks are we going to see this year? Chicago. Let's, I mean, you know, we're, we're sleeping on Chicago here a little bit. Once upon a time, you know, what was it, like in March or something, like Chicago was at or near the top of the Eastern Conference standings. When they were healthy, you know, you had DeMar DeRozan playing like an MVP candidate for crying out loud. And then injuries completely like wrecked their season. What happens if Chicago is able to stay healthy and actually put a full season together? They're going to team. They're a team you're going to have to hear about. You know, the Philadelphia 76ers. You got Joel Embiid on that team. Right. I mean, as long as you got him, that's a dude that you have to worry about. The question is, what about some of the other guys that he's going to be playing with? And James Harden, of course, at the top of the list. You know, if Chris Middleton doesn't get hurt for the Milwaukee Bucks, are we talking about Golden State as the champs right now, or are we talking about Milwaukee running it back-to-back? I think if Chris Middleton doesn't get hurt, at the very least, we're talking about Milwaukee being in the NBA Finals. I don't think the Celtics beat him with a healthy Chris Middleton. So you know the Bucks are going to be back. The Celtics, who knows? Right? This was a, a, a good opportunity for them. It was a nice exposure to be in the NBA Finals, but to say that they're guaranteed to get back there next year, I wouldn't make those claims. They got to go out there and get a point guard first and foremost, somebody that can settle this offense down and stop creating so many damn turnovers, especially in crucial situations. You know, let these other guys set your playmakers up to make plays. Give me a pass-first point guard, somebody that can steady the ship. Who that guy is, that's for Brad Stevens to decide, but they need one. That's priority number one. And then Miami. Miami, the heat culture, the way of life, which is a bunch of garbage. You know, Riley can talk about it all he wants and, you know, Spolstra, and they could sell it all they want. To, that's what's actually happening down there in South Florida. What's really happening in South Florida is the weather, no state taxes, and the quality of life. That's the culture down there. It's got nothing to do with basketball. It's got nothing to do with the Miami Heat. It's got nothing to do with Pat Riley and Mickey Arison and everybody, Alonzo Mourning. Nobody cares about that stuff with the basketball. It's you know, spending your winter down in, in, in South Beach, living the life, making a gazillion dollars. That's quote-unquote heat culture. So the point is, Eastern Conference, it's going to be a dogfight next year. It really and truly is. And the Knicks got their work cut out for them because I don't have to tell you, 
if the Knicks bring this same team back to camp again next year, you know, barring a few tweaks here and there, you know, rosters aren't going to be exactly the same, but basically bring the same group back, you feeling good about them? I don't think I do. Enough with running in place. Enough with just making the playoffs. Like, we got that out of our system last year. How about advancing? How about working your way up the Eastern Conference standings? That should be the next test and the next task for Leon Rose and company. How do you make that happen? Well, there is a guy potentially who's rumored to be out there. I think you know who his name is. He wears a Laker uniform. He's worn a lot of uniforms, actually, for the last few years. Mr. Westbrook. All in favor of the Knicks swinging a deal to bring Russ, the Tasmanian devil, to Broadway. Yay or nay? Let me know. All right. Westbrook. He's out there. He's not technically out there. He's Lakers' property, but he could be out there. Now, the Lakers have said all the things that would lead you to indicate that they're bringing him back. Darvin Ham, who's their new coach. Well, let's be real. Assistant coach. We know who the real coach is. Darvin Ham is the uh, the guy who's going to actually like you know walk up and down the sidelines during the games because the real head coach actually is out there in uniform playing in the games. But there are a lot of a lot of red flags here. You know, this is not Russell Westbrook from the Oklahoma City days. Um. Uh, by the way, Jacob's just telling me, I'm just reading this now. Kenny Atkinson, the former Nets coach, remember the guy who Kevin Durant swore up and down was one of the reasons why he signed with Brooklyn and, you know, wax poetic about his basketball genius, watching all of these offensive sets on YouTube before deciding to join the Nets and all those things before he was nowhere to be found when they came knocking on his door to see if uh, they should give Kenny Atkinson uh, the hook or not. He didn't stand up for him then, but anyway. It looked like Kenny Atkinson was the, the – basically everything was done except dotting the, dotting the I's and crossing the T's to be the new head coach of the Charlotte Hornets. And now Kenny Atkinson deciding to stay with the Warriors as an assistant coach. That according to Woj. How about that? So Kenny Atkinson getting a ring as an assistant with the Dubs, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to run it back and get another one. He likes jewelry. He's a jewelry guy because he sure as hell ain't winning one with the Charlotte Hornets. I'm sure Michael Jordan's happy, right? Imagine how many people have said no to Michael Jordan over the last 30 years. I can't imagine. It's, uh, it's a short list. it got to be one hand maybe. Right? Well, guess what? Kenny Atkinson just added his name to that list. I don't know if that's a great <laughs> list to be on, especially with uh, Mike's track record of uh, keep, keeping things noted. <laughs> so, in the, so basically in the last couple of years, two people that I could think of that have now said no to Michael Jordan. One is Kenny Atkinson. The other is probably Scottie Pippen. <laughs> Oh my good. So how about good for you know good for Kenny, right? Maybe he just likes the quality of life out in the Bay Area. Good for him. You know what he's getting paid. He's earning an honest buck and uh, he's going to have a good shot to win the titles. All right, so there you go. Back to the Knicks, back to Westbrook. Like I was saying, this isn't the same Russ that you know took a Oklahoma City team and averaged a triple-double after Kevin Durant left to go to the Warriors and you know he decided you know, to stay in OKC and wanted to tough it out. And he was thought of as like, you know, an old school hero type player, won an MVP. There's a lot that's happened since then. You know, 
he's already been on four teams in the last four years. Think about that. Four teams in four years. And if he goes to some, if he gets traded someplace else, that's going to be five teams in five years. Don't you think that that is a little worrisome? Like, really, really good players don't change hands that often if any of the previous teams felt that he was going to be helpful for allowing them to win some games. So that alone petrifies me. And there's already odds that are out there, like circulating as to, you know, if, should the Lakers move on from Russell Westbrook, where's his likely destination? Well, first of all, you have to have some cap space. You have to be able to absorb that bloated salary. Indiana is the leader in the clubhouse, then the Knicks, and then Oklahoma City. Not world beaters by any stretch, but again, cap space. And Oklahoma City, remember, they they don't actually like to have real players. They just collect draft picks. Oklahoma City's got like, you know, 58 draft picks over the next five years or whatever it is, but they don't actually keep talented players and try to grow talented players or, you know, rake up any sort of a uh, payroll because they're all just like figments of our imagination. So you're going to have to get by that. $47 million is what he's owed on a player option this year. $47 million. And teams want a first-round pick from the Lakers if they take on that contract. So, like, if the Knicks, let's say, okay, we'll acquire Russ – we also want a first-round pick from you. That's what they're telling the Lakers. But the Lakers don't want to budge. And maybe that's part of the reason why they say, at least publicly, that they don't want to move on from him because they don't want to give up that draft choice. I think that it's almost more of a save face thing more than anything else. Because remember, the head coach slash player coach was the one who championed for them to go out there and bring him in. And it was a disaster. It didn't work out on either end of the floor. And the mix was not right. The chemistry was awful. And that's why the Lakers were one of the biggest flops that we've seen in quite some time in the fact that they didn't even make the playoffs this year. So Frank Vogel had to pay for his job. But LeBron James is the one who's pulling all these strings. I mean, make no mistake about it. And so I think from his own ego side of things, he doesn't want to say, all right, goodbye, Russ. It didn't work out because then you know that he's going to admit failure by moving on from him. So maybe they try to run it back at least in the first couple of months of the season. And then if it doesn't work, then they could break this thing up. I don't know. But I'd still be surprised if it happens. Now, bottom line, if you're asking me, is this a move that I think the Knicks should make? Do I actually think it will make them a better basketball team? Do I actually think that it will help them bridge the gap between the top of the Eastern Conference standings and where they currently are right now? The answer is no. You're not getting them for nothing. So you're probably going to have to sacrifice some of your quote-unquote depth to be able to bring him in, and it's not like we're talking about a Knicks team which is just blossoming with talent to begin with. This team was so talented they missed the playoffs last year. 800-919-3776. Adam in Oceanside is going to bat leadoff for us here on 98.7 ESPN. Adam, how are you? I'm good. I could not agree more with everything you were saying. Why so? Tell me why you don't want him. I think that Russell Westbrook can't even handle the pressure in Los Angeles, which means he won't even be able to handle the pressure in New York because I think the pressure is more here than it is in Los Angeles. And he won't have Anthony Davis and LeBron to carry him when he's doing terrible on the floor. I don't think, though, Adam, and and I thank you for the call. I don't think it was a situation where I'm going to pin that on Russell Westbrook. Just telling it like it is. 
because I don't think it was incumbent upon Russell Westbrook and his shoulders specifically to have to weather all of that blame and that pressure out there. Not his team. Two guys. Two guys above every – it's really, I mean, you know, if we're, if we're being honest with each other, it's one guy. It's LeBron. But if you're going to add a second guy, it was Anthony Davis. Those are the ones that had the most pressure on them to help keep that team thriving and get them back to being a champion. And Anthony Davis, remember, he don't play. You know, one of these days it would be nice to actually see Anthony Davis play an entire season. And don't you think, by the way, you find it a little ironic that Anthony Davis, whose biggest problem in his whole NBA career is durability, that the only championship they ended up winning and he ended up winning was one that was in a bubble, which didn't require any travel, right? The only travel that it required was they would get on the shuttle bus from the wide world of Disney uh, Resort down there at the World of Sports and over to the basketball arena to play their playoff games. That was the only travel that it entailed, not cross-country flights or anything like that. And, oh, by the way, the bubble happened after four months of not doing anything. So they were well-rested. But any other time that it's a normal circumstance and it involves you know traveling and going to different arenas and all these other things or whatnot, Anthony Davis never won anything. Hell, he can't even stay healthy enough to play. I questioned the Russell Westbrook fit with the Lakers from the outset. It, it just didn't make any – it was, you know, it was almost like just getting the old band back together. It's like, hey, let's get the all-star team from five, six years ago all on one squad. It's almost like a reunion. It's like your high school reunion. It doesn't mean that they're still good basketball players or what they currently can bring to the court is going to mesh well enough together to allow them to be successful, and it didn't. But don't take on some other team's garbage and think that that's going to be the missing piece for what ails you as a basketball team. And that's the slippery slope the Knicks are getting into. Look, if you tell me that Julius Randle and the three more years plus a fourth-year option are attractive to the Lakers, like the Lakers want to bring Julius back home and have a reunion, and that's something that's equitable and could be a large part of the trade piece – I look at that as a numbers game, not a talent game, or where the two players are respective in their NBA careers. I look at that as one more year of Russell Westbrook versus three or potentially four more years of a Julius Randle contract that you are freeing yourself up for. Now maybe I'm worth listening to that. Now you've got me engaged. Now you got me hooked. But I don't know if that's going to necessarily create a match because it takes two to tango. We're talking about the offseason here in the NBA. Why? Because the season's over. Congrats to Golden State. They're champs. They won. It's over. Finished. Congrats to them. Um, you know, there's a couple of different ways you can look at this. Number one, from a Boston standpoint, they had a great year. They really and truly did. Remember, they were breaking in a brand-new head coach this year. And things looked a little ugly for them early on. Remember that first game of the season against the Knicks, the bing-bong game? That was fun. That was an epic. Knicks and Celtics played a couple of epic games earlier this season. Crazy games. But the Celtics were kind of even, like, you know, stumbling about, even, like, upwards of 40-plus games into the season. And you were wondering, like, well, what is this team? Like, and you looked at them as almost a disappointment. Daime Udoka didn't know what he was doing as a coach that, you know, did Brad Stevens and company mess this thing up? Like what, you know, what did they do? Well, ultimately they had the last laugh because they went all the way to the NBA finals. And I think that it is a good, valuable experience for them, a learning experience. But, 
you know, they just didn't have enough. And as I said earlier, I think priority number one for the Celtics in the offseason is making sure you go out there and get a point guard. A guy who's going to distribute, a guy who's going to be able to protect the basketball because turnovers, and I, I think turnovers more than anything else, that is what did the Celtics in in this series. Way too careless with the basketball. You know, and especially in the case of the game like on Thursday night, you're turning the ball over 20-something times a game, and you're giving the team down the other end of the floor like 20 points a night. I mean, you can't do that against a team like Golden State. You can't do that against like a, a high school team, much less the Golden State Warriors. They'll make you pay for it. And a lot of the miscues that the Celtics were making, it wasn't even like, oh, these are just, you know, Golden State generating these turnovers and generating these. No, that was just their own self-inflicted wounds, unforced errors. And that's uncharacteristic of a team that's playing for an NBA championship. Like, that should not happen. But what the Celtics did is they announced themselves as a club that you're going to have to pay a lot of attention to over the next few years in the Eastern Conference. I'm not saying that they're going to get back to the finals, but, you know, they had things break in the right direction for them. You know, they took out the Milwaukee Bucks in the second round this year and give them credit for beating the champs, but they got to take on a Milwaukee team that was missing Chris Middleton. And if Chris Middleton is healthy, do I think the Celtics beat them? No, I don't. But that's not reality. What happened is is that Boston found a way to beat them. Then Boston goes to Miami and wins a game number seven uh, on the road in the Eastern Conference Finals. You give them a lot of credit for that. But I also think that they were running out of gas by the time the finals rolled around. You know, Golden State had a lot easier path to the finals than Boston did. Remember, Golden State, they didn't have to go through the Phoenix Suns. They didn't have to face them at all because they got picked off by the Mavericks. And it doesn't matter, right? You play who's in front of you. You can't control those other things. But the Celtics are going to be a force to be reckoned with, I think, for several years in this Eastern Conference. And now with Golden State, look, you win four championships in less than a decade. Pretty darn impressive. I don't think I got to tell you. And the fact that they were able to reload to the extent that they did to where they get that first championship, right? Then Kevin Durant climbs aboard. And then they win a couple of more championships. I know that they stubbed their toe before Durant rolled around, but they won 73 games. Remember that? Remember that 73-win season before Durant came? And everybody wanted to make that the greatest team of all time. That was the greatest team. That was all the all oh, because they had the regular season record. They won the most games in the regular season, but they didn't cap it off with a championship, so that's a moot point now. Doesn't matter. Right? You got to finish it with a title. They couldn't do it. Durant comes, they win two rings. Might have had an extra one, but the whole team got hurt. Durant, Clay, and they lose to Toronto. And everybody goes their merry way. Durant comes to Brooklyn. And then the Warriors are like forgotten about. Right, They bottom out because of injuries. And so this year, when the season started, I think that you looked at Golden State as a what-if team. Right, What if they're healthy? Well, what happens is, is that you're going to have to take them seriously. But I don't know how many people realistically gave them a shot to win a championship this year. Like I thought in the Western Conference it was Phoenix's conference to lose. And I still thought even going into the playoffs, I thought that all things equal, Phoenix was going to be the team that would still make it to I, – I thought Phoenix-Milwaukee was going to be the finals again, a rematch, except I thought the Suns were going to win it this time around. They didn't do it. 
But it's really impressive. And what I love about a team like Golden State and the way they were able to pull this off, and really not just this run in particular, but like the whole since this thing started. The core of that team is homegrown, right? Curry, Clay, Draymond. They drafted those dudes. They developed those dudes. Look, it's not their fault that Kevin Durant wanted to come play for them. You know, if you got a phone call and you ran a team and they said, oh, by the way, Kevin Durant wants to come play for your team, would you what would you say, no? Of course you take him in. But as I said last night, Kevin Durant needed the Warriors more than the Warriors needed Kevin Durant. Remember, they had their rings already, right? Golden State had the jewelry already before KD walked in. KD needed them to get some, some bling, and he's got it. You know, and he was the finals MVP for those two runs, and good for him, and deservedly so. And, you know, if you remember, Steph Curry took a back seat during that time. Remember that? Those became Kevin Durant's teams. Even though Curry had seniority as far as playing with the organization and, you know, spending his whole career with Golden State, KD took over and became the alpha male. And then I think that people to a certain extent, almost were sleeping on Steph. Like, you forgot about him. Not that he wasn't a great shooter, not that he wasn't a great player, but, like, the guy that teams went out to stop with Golden State was trying to stop Kevin Durant. And that's why he ended up being the finals MVP. You know what what Curry became? During those years with KD, Curry became, like, what Kobe was those first three titles with Shaq. He had to essentially become Robin to Batman. And now when KD's gone, now it becomes Steph's team again. And now he finally gets his finals MVP, right? Finally gets his MVP. But what one thing I don't buy too much, and, you know, I, I went into this a lot last night. I just, for the life of me, I can't get all wrapped up that this finals MVP now is supposed to automatically change how we view Steph Curry's career. Like, if you didn't already view his career as one of the great careers, first ballot Hall of Famer, best shooter of all time, you know, multiple MVPs, multiple championships. Like, I didn't need a finals MVP to validate his greatness, or not necessarily to validate his greatness, but to prove that he was, you know, this immortal, otherworldly player. And I think people get carried away too much, too fast with some of that stuff, right? And they want to make these swift judgments. Like, I don't put him any higher than I did before this series took place. What I thought of him before the series is the same as I think of him after the series, and that's even with a finals MVP. That doesn't change anything. Like, we're not moving people out of the way on, like, the so-called historical all-time list just because Steph Curry has a finals MVP. Some people wanted to do that, and I'm not. Great player. But you got some of these guys now, like, kicking, like, Will Chamberlain off the list, you know, like, or, or moving Will Chamberlain aside over in favor of Steph Curry. I mean, are we? Are, it, it just goes to show you how little people know. Lizelle and Yonkers up next. He's on 98.7 ESPN. Lizelle, what's going on? How you doing, Dan? I got to disagree with you a little bit. KD didn't ask them. They came to him. First, Draymond made a call after they got bounced by LeBron, and it was it was Draymond's fault, by the way. Right, they had the meeting in the Hamptons. 
Right. So so he called him first, then Kerr, Curry, Clay, and him all flew out to the hands to, 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 you know, kiss the ring and ask him to come play with them. I think uh, um, KD gets all the heat, and, and, and although it's very humble that Steph wanted to take a back seat, the same people that will say LeBron this, LeBron that, Jordan would never take a back seat to another player and, and still be considered great. Um, and also, um, to, to your to your other point about the finals MVP thing, I don't think the, the MVP trophy is what matters to people like me. I, I love it, the way Steph plays, but I needed to see a dominant finals performance like this one. I, I just never saw it in the finals. I saw it during the season – but this is the first time he, the team was no question on his back, and he was the reason that they that they won it all. I think that's what certain people like me needed to see to give him that credit. Yeah, but I, I mean, he was a two-time league MVP, though, Lizelle. That's not good enough for you. No, no, but but to be to be considered because people like you said, people trying to knock out Wilt Chamberlain and all this stuff for him. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to need to see some heroics in the finals at least once. Think about it. They were trying to give the, the MVP that to LeBron that year in a loss. He was the best they, player got, in the series. Yeah. So he got zero votes in, 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 that, in that MVP, you, in that finals. You need better from someone. That, if you're going to start kicking people out of the top ten for Steph Curry, I needed to see at least one total domination of a, of a finals. And, you know, this one wasn't total domination, but it was good enough. He was dominant enough. It kind of stinks that people were even trying to put Wiggins in the conversation, but that wasn't going to happen. But but I'm very convinced now that he's definitely an all-time great. I don't put him in the top 10, but I put him right there. I put him like he could be in the top 15 for sure. And he's definitely yeah, the greatest it, it, shooter ever. That's And Lizelle, that's fair. I think what you that last thing you just said is fair. That's 100% fair. And what I don't understand why some people feel so compelled to make these swift, hot takes and have to make a rush to judgment based solely on recency bias that now we have to, like, move mountains because of the result of one series. Exactly. Prisoners of the moment, Dan. Hey, recency bias is a crime as far as I'm concerned. It's a crime. (laughs) It's a crime. Lizelle, good stuff, my man. You get back to us, all right? I appreciate the phone call. Recency bias is, is, is a threat because it clouds sane and rational thought. It does. Yeah, I, I, I mean, some of these people, like, with, you know, like, that's almost like, that's like NBA blasphemy. If the words ever come out of your mouth that, like, you're putting Steph Curry over Wilt Chamberlain. I mean, last night I was talking about the yo-yos that are saying that he should be, like, ahead of Larry Bird. I mean, oh, my God. Oh, my, like... Come back to me. Open up an encyclopedia. Open up a Google. Go on YouTube. Why, learn about history. Learn about the history of the game before you make these crazy comments. And I'm gonna, I'll, you know what? We come back. Somebody who I respect the hell out of, by the way, about basketball. I was talking to him earlier. Made a fantastic point that hadn't dawned on me about Steph Curry. And in a way, in a way, Steph Curry actually is hurting the game. Hurting the game. Talking about the Warriors and Curry and the championship. And, you know, somebody I was talking to today, been around the game for years, years and years and years, years, knows his stuff. And he's made the point that, you know, Curry's impact on the current version of the NBA right now might actually be a detriment and it might be a negative. 
I said, you think about when he burst onto the scene, and I'm not talking about like, this is more so when the Warriors actually became a championship club. Remember, he was already in the league for, what, five, six years before the Warriors got that first championship? Like, he'd been around, and it was, all right, I don't think that people were absolutely just enamored with that. Like, they didn't arrive until, like, that year when Steve Kerr took over. I know they made the playoffs a couple of times under Mark Jackson and whatnot, but, you know, we still did not look at the Golden State Warriors any differently. They were just a team that, you know, really had not won anything. To be quite honest with you. You know, I made the point last night, I think we were talking about it. You realize the Golden State Warriors, until that first year when they won that championship, they had gone like over a stretch of, I think it was something like, you know, 17 years maybe. And they had only made the playoffs one time. Think about that. From 2000, or excuse me, from 1994 to 2012 under Mark Jackson, 94 to 2012. So that is, let's see, six, eight, almost 18 years. They only made the playoffs one time. They were as irrelevant as irrelevant can be. They were the Sacramento Kings as a franchise. So when Curry started doing all of his crazy stuff and, you know, basically taking shots from half court and anywhere he wanted to on the floor – and making them, more importantly. I think that that caught the eye of other players around the league. You know, for example, then Biggs started saying, well, I I could put it up from anywhere, and I could shoot the ball wherever I want. I'll just keep launching threes. And I think that certainly other guys who were more proficient when it came to shooting long distance and that sort of thing, they also looked on and said, well, all right, that's that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to play. Because they thought that, hey, the Warriors are having success doing it a certain way. Let's try to kind of, you know, it's a copycat league. You try to do exactly the same thing that one team is doing and see if it can make it your own. To that point, you see the way the game now has opened up over the last, you know, decade or so. And in a lot of ways, watching the NBA, it's almost become like a glorified three-point shooting contest. And don't tell me it hasn't. And don't tell me it's not. The game is way too reliant on the three-pointer right now. And I think that Curry's influence is somebody that, you know, hangs over that just because he's so good at doing it. Copycat league. And that's not exactly the brand of basketball that I enjoy watching. That's not exactly the brand of basketball that, you know, I first got me into the NBA and first got me into the game because that's not what it's about. You know, a lot of times these teams, you know, offensively, they get the ball, they run it up the floor. And lo and behold, it's, you know, quick, get it up quick. You know, seven seconds or less, like the old Mike D'Antoni stuff. It's like, quick, just get the ball out of your hands and then just chuck it up from anywhere on the floor. Not as much offense, not as much motion, not as much sets, not as much, you know what I'm saying? That's why the college game to me, the college game to me seems to be more of a truer form of basketball to the one that we all grew up watching. And that's why I enjoy the heck out of college poops. But the NBA is a different game, and I think that Curry's somebody that has played a big role in influencing how this game has evolved. Whether you like it, whether you don't like it. Some people do, some people don't. You know, some people, it's not their cup of tea. And I totally, you know, whatever side of the fence you're on in in this discussion, I'm okay with. Whatever floats your boat. But are the Warriors due now? Like, you think about it. Like, are they done? 
Like, was this just a one-off, or do you think that they got an opportunity to add on even more rings? And, and I think it's the latter, to be quite honest with you. Because one thing is for certain, when you look at the supporting cast, and I know one of the other callers brought up Andrew Wiggins, for example. Andrew Wiggins, I think from top to bottom, he proved to be the second-best player on this roster behind Steph Curry in the series, in the series. Because Draymond was MIA. He was off doing whatever the hell it was he was doing. And Klay Thompson, I think he's going to be even better next year. You know, think about all the adversity that he had to undergo and coming back from those two injuries and the surgery and the rehab and the, you know, to just step right back out there and play at a high level, even though it was really all season, I think he's going to be a year removed from all the adversity and I think he's going to benefit from it that much more. So you're going to see a better Clay Thompson next year. And that makes him scary. It does. But the problem that they're going to run into is, much like we were talking about the Eastern Conference, the West is ready to reload too. I don't think that you're going to be able to just pass off the Western Conference as, oh, you know, they got to the finals this year. You know that they're going to easily get there next year. Not so fast, right? What is a Denver team going to look like next year that's even – dare I say, healthy, right? How about that? You know, Phoenix is going to be back. What are the Lakers going to look like? I don't know. Hey, the Clippers might actually have Kawhi Leonard in the lineup. I know that that's a rarity. We don't see him that often, but Kawhi should be around. You know, what was this year for the Memphis Grizzlies? Was this a stepping stone or was this just like one season and now they're going to go back to being just like a middle-of-the-pack type team? Is Dallas going to be able to build off of a run to the conference finals? And then you have that X factor in Utah. When you talk about players and superstars and whatnot who may or may not still be on the team next year, our boy Donovan Mitchell. You know he wants to come home. You know Mitchell wants to be here. I know you saw him at City Field this week at batting practice. Taking cuts with the Mets, visiting his pop out there in Queens. He wants to come home. By the way, did you see the new Utah uniforms? I mean, I don't know if you've had enough time to actually, like, glance through them all. Like, they've, you know, had the big reveal. And, and it's tough to keep up with these things because it just seems like these teams are changing uniforms, like, every other week. And Utah's going through, like, a total rebrand. I like the fact that. Utah feels it's got nothing to do with the player. You know, it's got nothing to do with the players. It's got nothing to do with the fact that, um, you know, they're changing coaches. You know, Quinn Snyder is uh, stepping away, so they're going to have a new head coach and everything. All that stuff is immaterial. The reason that Utah has not been able to make strides and get any further along in the Western Conference and in the playoffs was because the uniforms, naturally. So now they got to change those. So now they got like about like 10 different uniform combinations and whatnot. And. I had no problem with Utah's uniforms, you know, when it was Stockton and Malone, and it was just like the purple and the 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 gold and the the jazz note and stuff like that. I mean, that was, you know, that's the Utah Jazz. Now they're bringing back like the mountain look again that they changed into at the tail end of Stockton and Malone's career. Plus, they're bringing like a incorporating like a neon yellow and black type of an alternate jersey. I mean, they've got like eighty-five different uniforms. I would think even with your own local fan base, that's hard to develop an identity. But it sells, and it makes them money, and that's what these teams are all about, seeing if they can grow their revenue stream. 
uh, at the end of the day. That, that That's the most important thing here. This is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs>